the magazine grows out of a uh, actually newsletter from an alumni organization called the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Caucus. And I was the editor of the newsletter for many years, um, wow. starting sometime in the 80s. And, you know, I had this kind of this this great grand idea that we would just start. It was actually just going to be annual at first, but it would be called um, the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Review, which kind of drew out sort of in a natural way from um, the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Newsletter. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon where I'm giving you all seven days of a free trial. So p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you join the ITBR professor level, which you'll see gets you access to all of our rewatch podcast series like Queer as Folk and Smash, and all of our Teaches series, including when we rewatched Scream with you all, when we discussed The Exorcist. We're about to do a Britney Spears memoir episode. So, oh, and The Fall of the House of Usher is coming up. You also get access to both book clubs. And while you're at it, while you're joining our Patreon, where you're getting your seven days for free, I would really love if you... Make sure you like and follow us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave a review. It really does help us in terms of advertisers and sponsors. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network, and it is just wonderful to be part of this arts and culture organization and have you all out there reach out to me. So again, remember, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook and we're on X as well. Enjoy this episode, everyone. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. And when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work um how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your instagram all of that i have done so just reach out to me also i'm really excited to announce that the december book club choice is britney spears's the woman in me memoir so to join the book club 
head to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and go to events and you're going to see a form there just so I know how many of you are joining the book club. And that way I can reach out to each of your email addresses and poll all of you to see what date at the end of December works. It's going to be the week after Christmas. So don't worry, it's not going to be the week of Christmas. That would be hectic. And then I'll let you all know how to join the book club, which happens on Patreon. You just join under the ITBR book club section. So can't wait to see who wants to discuss Britney Spears. We have a lot to dissect there. And in the also, if you want to join the Wicked Broadway Musical group event, which is happening in March, head to that event section on the website and fill out that Google form by December 1st. Ah, so much happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and I love this community. I love being the host and director of this arts and culture organization. Thank you all for supporting me. It means so much. And please spread the word for my consultation services for the podcast, the book club, the Broadway musical, group event, all the things. And without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you're watching this on YouTube or on our Patreon, I have our lovely logo behind me. But actually, it's a very special episode, so I have to change my background because this is a Gay and Lesbian Review fall episode and a fall episode. And I am joined with the esteemed editor-in-chief and founder, Richard Snyder Jr., there you go. Got to get the junior part out there, Richard. Uh, so, Richard, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much. Well, first, before we just dig into exciting, you know, literature that you have out there, I have my lovely November and December issue in front of me. I know you have a 30th anniversary book coming out soon. Before all of that, I just wanted to ask, as the founder, how many years has it been that you created the Gay and Lesbian Review. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because we're about to celebrate our 30th anniversary. Um, the first issue was um, winter 1994. That was back when we were um, quarterly. And so that's why it was winter. We are now bi-monthly. So our um, 30th birthday will be celebrated with the January, February issue. But instead of having an issue, we're actually going to replace it with a book. We've done that before on special occasions. Um, and so this will be actually the third time that we've um, published a book in lieu of an issue. And it's kind of a retrospective. Um, you'll probably ask me about it more later, but just to give a quick little overview, the, uh, the concept is that we're looking back over 30 years. And so um, we, and we have a, this wonderful artist named Charles Heffling. And so this is actually part two of a book of his um, wonderful illustrations um, accompanied by some, um, oh, brief-ish passages that are from past issues that give a little summation of the various individuals, um, LGBT people who we've, um, who are showing, whose illustration is being presented um, from Charles Heffling. And so that's what's upcoming in um, our January, February issue. So long way of answering. We've been doing this for 30 years. Yeah. So if you're currently a subscriber like myself and you and Stephen, Stephen um, is Richard's partner. Is that the right terminology, Richard? 
Actually, he's my husband. Your husband. Okay. okay. I'm yeah, very careful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, <clears throat> we've been together actually for um, 24 and some odd years, but we got married just last year in, um, let's see, 2022. Um, and so... Um, and his name is Stephen Hemrick. He's the publisher of the magazine. And yeah, we're married now. Yeah. So what I think is so fascinating is not only happy 30 years, I also am just curious, what is a major distinction between that first issue compared to, you know, the beautiful magazine that I now hold in my hands from November and December? Hang on. I can so you actually have the first issue. Yes, right oh, here. Oh, wow. We have all of the issues are here. So, I, because I think it is actually very revealing. So, it was all in black and white. It's just this oh, wow. very simple design. Um, and it was 32 pages long. I oh, think. and it's called the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Review. Too. Yeah, back then it was, yes, yes, we were the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Review for our first six years or so. And um, after that, period uh, in the year 2000 I think our very first issue of the millennium of the new millennium we um I changed our name we dropped the Harvard and became just the gay and lesbian review and we added worldwide which we don't use all that much but officially our name is the gay and lesbian review worldwide and we've been using G and LR because it's it's old-fashioned I realize gay and lesbian is it's 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 too exclusionary um so we try to just say G and LR and go by letters um kind of the way the NAACP does. It's like you, you have a name that's kind of from a different era, but you if you just reduce it to the letters, somehow it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, well, and we're the ITBR. So yeah, acronyms are enjoyable. Um, yeah, the ITBR. Yes, yeah, yeah, and for everyone out there, I actually had Martha E. Stone, the literary editor of GNLR, has been on the podcast. So you all can listen to that episode from the spring. Um, and she gave us so many recommendations of what to look forward to in the summer. Um, has there been a major difference after Harvard no longer had, was it an ownership, Richard, or they had some kind of say in it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, the magazine grows out of a, uh, actually, a newsletter from an alumni organization called the Harvard Gan Lesbian Caucus. And I was the editor of the newsletter for many years, um, wow. starting sometime in the '80s. And you know, I had this kind of this this great grand idea that we would just start it. It was actually just going to be annual at first, but it would be called um, the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Review, which kind of drew out sort of in a natural way from um, the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Newsletter, and that. Then it very quickly became a quarterly magazine, and it very quickly outgrew Harvard in the sense that we were now distributing not just to our alumni, but to people across the country. Um, and so that continued um, for a number of years. But Harvard did come to us in, I think, 1999 and said, you know, we love the magazine and we understand you came by the name honestly because it is an alumni organization, but you really don't have an official affiliation with the university. So in order to continue the, using the name Harvard, you'd have to get a school or a department to sponsor you with a faculty mm -hmm. sponsor. And so we thought, well, we could do that. We could try to do that. But you know what? Um, we're happy not using the name Harvard. You know, we've kind of outgrown that at this point. So we, we gladly dropped Harvard 
in in that year and then um as i said in 2000 we started with our new name and we've been we've been um bi-monthly with just the name the game that has been reviewed ever since well, so it must have also given you a type of entrepreneurial creative freedom in a way, I'm assuming, to like not have to be beholden to a university's department, which might object to certain articles or could object to certain contributors. Like you'd have to go through a rigmarole in a way. It would have been a cumbersome process. And and they probably would have wanted it to be like a refereed journal, um, which, mm -hmm. which it's not. It's a magazine. And we've always called it a magazine um and so yeah i would have lost all kinds of editorial control and i don't even know what the implications would be we, we thought about it for maybe you know eight minutes total before rejecting the idea and saying no that's fine actually it, and it turned out for the better really because a lot of times we would go to like um the old outright conferences and various um, expos and people would come up to us and say, oh, sorry, I don't have a Harvard affiliation, so I can't subscribe. And so we had to explain to people, no, 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 you don't need a Harvard affiliation. It's called the Harvard Gannisbury. So actually we, we felt like we did better once we dropped the name because then people realized, look, this is for everybody or certainly um, everybody who's interested in LGBT issues. And um, so that worked out quite well, I think. Well, and now you're also, you know, here in the podcasting space with me, I love, you know, amplifying the GNLR, having you as an official sponsor, but you also had, William Kaiser had done a special podcast. So if everyone searched Gay and Lesbian Review right now on Apple or Spotify podcasts, they would find, do you remember, Richard, what that uh, special podcast is that William did? It was that, called like, Popular. You, popular, it's called. Popular. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Simple title, com more, much more complicated um, podcast than the title would indicate, because um, it was kind of about Washington D.C. and being gay there, and um, oh, this little experiment that he did. Could he become a popular one of the popular people in um, the LGBT world? What would it take, and what would it mean to be, you know, sure. popular? So he was kind yeah. of exploring this idea of, I don't know, reputation and popularity and um, and how that works in the in the gay world. I say the gay world because it probably is kind of a gay male world that he was dealing with because he was going out to the clubs and stuff. Um, so I think this is one time when we can be forgiven for just saying it was kind of a, a gay-oriented podcast. Well, and it was such an anthropological study. Like, I really urge everyone out there to listen because William, like you said, Richard, takes us on his underground clubbing type journey through DC no. um, and its corridors of um, all this homoerotic and just erotic energy. So yeah, it was so enjoyable. But like what I love now, Richard, is that the Gay and Lesbian Review, um, so many who I get to chat with who are LGBTQ writers, um, podcasters, media figures, they all are starting to follow you on social media on the GL Review is your Instagram channel, or not channel, but your Instagram tag. And they're following your profile. And they said to me, they just love, uh, most of them are actually getting the physical copy, but they love, like I do, just getting it in the mail. There's something so nostalgic. And I feel that my millennial generation and Gen Zers really want that experience again. 
right? Like digital, and you do have a digital edition, right? I don't want to not say you do because they have an amazing digital edition uh, with back issues. Um, but there is something so beautiful of just how curated the magazine still is. Like just the illustrations. And I think maybe this goes into your 30th special 30th anniversary book, which is these beautiful caricatured images that Charles had done, right? Or still does. He still does them for us. Yes, mm -hmm. no, it's all true. I mean, that's good to hear because um, we certainly um, are trying to reach out to a broader readership. And the fact that people of your generation are still interested in reading a hard copy magazine is, is good news um, uh, because Many, many publications, as you know, have simply gone online or abandoned hard copy. And there is perhaps something a little nostalgic. I think that's, you know, a nice way of putting it. You could say it's retro um, mm -hmm. or it's or it's just um, a fossil, uh, depending upon how you want to look at it. But we've kept it going for all this time. And we've found that despite predictions that we would you know we wouldn't be able to endure for much longer as a hard copy magazine, we have. So, um, so far so good. Um, we have no plans to go digital exclusively. Although, as you say, we do have a digital edition and we would love people to subscribe to that because we think that's um, kind of our future. But oddly enough, the digital edition hasn't, hasn't um, taken off as much as we would expect or like. So um, anybody who wants to subscribe to the digital edition is exactly like the magazine itself. It's, you only see it online. You see it on your iPad or your Kindle or whatever device you use. Well, and even Scott Alexander Hess, who's been on our Queerest Folk, um, or is about to be, I don't think it's out yet, but he recapped a Queerest Folk episode from 2000 with me because like, we have that series on our podcast. So I bring on these queer male. And of course, I think you and Steven recapping one would be a really comedic experience. Uh, so I'll have to get you on that in the future. But like what I love is like, then I saw he had a Here's My Story about his new novel, A Season in Delhi. Um, I saw Matt Baum, who's been on my podcast. His book, um, Hi, Honey, I'm Homo, is actually in the November and December issue reviewed. So I think Manuel Betancourt, um, who I've had on. So it's wonderful to see really? how yeah. all of your, um, Eric Marcus was just on the show in the summer with Making Gay History. Um, of course, Andrew Lear is one of your contributors, the classic oh, he's also queer, my, classic he's scholar. Friend. He's also my really, probably my closest friend. Oh, um, good. Yeah, yeah we're, very, we're very tight. He's in Europe now. He's actually coming home very soon having lunch tomorrow. <laughs> So he's probably yeah. in, in a plane right now, um, coming back for after a very long time in Europe. But that's great to hear that all those people. Yeah, I love that title. Hi, honey, I'm homo. Uh, <laughs> it's about yes. sitcoms. Um, yes, yes, yes. And and I uh, the title I gave that piece was as sitcom goes, so goes the nation. Mm. Um, because I really think that in many ways sitcoms do sort of reflect the zeitgeist of the country in many ways. Um, so and our, our good friend Andrew Holleran just did a review of uh, Will and Grace. There's a new book on Will and Grace that's just out. It kind of as a as a phenomenon. So that's another um, another P, another major article that we have about a sitcom. Um, and, um, and and again, this the 
kind of cultural significance um, mm. of that as a phenomenon, but also as maybe a change agent to the extent that Will & Grace did, I think, open people's eyes and for at least some people made it okay to be LGBT. Uh, and um, and it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool show in some ways. Well, and it has the iconic gay best friend. I don't know if you um, know Nicholas DiDomizio, but he's a novelist and he came on to discuss his new novel, The Gay Best Friend. And we played this whole like game that I did with him about iconic gay best friends from TV shows, films. Um, and Will and Grace really does have a staying power. I agree with you, yeah. Richard. But what's interesting is we've gone away from the sitcom world. I'm not sure if this is where Andrew Holleran, I have to read that article, but um, we're now really in reality TV universe. And I'm wondering, is that just because of social media, um, influencers, TikTok, attention spans are shorter. People kind of want to see reality reflected, even though reality TV is not reality, but you know, that's a whole other conversation about producers and they have to create narratives. Do you think, yeah, like, do you think that um, those who contribute to do reviews for TV and film, has there been a real change right now? Like, where do you see TV and film when it comes to the queer community? I am here with the co-owner of one of my favorite stores here in Port Jefferson Village, New York. It is called The Soapbox. So Janine said, Andrew, I have these four products you need to get your hands on. It's called Four for Fall. So she's going to go over these four products. I know first you have a soap for me. What is the soap? I, do. I have a soap for you. It is called Apple Cider Shea Butter Soap. It's by a company called Greenwich Bay. And this is a great soap because you can use it for your hands or your body. And it has a delicious apple cider scent. And I think you're actually already familiar with it. Yes, it is Try in it. my shower. I still have it. It lasts a very long time. Yeah, great lather. The lather is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's just so luxurious. And I love the scent into November. Yes. You know, this apple cider just it evokes so many cozy feelings. Oh. After the soap, we have something that you can add on to yes. in the shower. So what is this? This is a wonderful, wonderful um, exfoliating shower scrub. It is by a company called Primal Almonds, and it's a sugar whip shower scrub. And the scent is pumpkin spice. It's a moisturizing sugar scrub. So it's tiny little sugar granules. And it's something that you would use after you shower twice a week because you don't want to strip your skin of your natural um, oils and your your moisture, but it's wonderful. It just really exfoli exfoliates all that dead skin and leaves your skin very smooth and soft from all the, um, the sugar. So after I use the exfoliant right now, we need to moisturize. So yeah. I know you have a really nice fall body lotion for us. Absolutely. Um, this is just such a delicious scent. This is one of my favorites for fall. It is, the scent is Orchard Breeze. And it's by a company called Michelle Design Works. Um, this is another product that you can use hand or body, hand and body. Um, it's great. You can place it um, on your vanity, just a couple of pumps for your hands or use it on your entire body. But it's shea butter based. So it's extremely moisturizing. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. And the scent is just lovely. We need something more deep for our face. Everyone yes. wants face masks. And I know that you absolutely love this company and this product. This is one of my favorite masks by one of my favorite companies that we carry and we support. The company is called Farmhouse Fresh and they're right out of Texas. 
The mask is called Splendid Dirt, and it's a nutrient-rich mud mask. Um, it consists of pumpkin puree, and the benefits of this mask, uh, it's a pore minimizer, a radiance booster, and a skin degunker. So it's an all-around great mask. If you really want a boost of radiance, it brightens your skin, and it really cleanses your pores. If they live on Long Island or near Long Island, you know, what is your address uh, for them to come into the store? We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson, New York, right in the village. Um, and if you can't make it, you have to come in because we just have so much fun stuff in here. So many wonderful products. Um, but if you can't make it in, please give us a call. We're more than happy to um, ship any of these wonderful, all any of these wonderful products to you. Um, uh, call us at 631-509-1424. You could always um, reach us on Instagram at the Soapbox NY, or you could always um, check us out on our website, Soapbox NY. Um, and yeah, there's so many ways to access yeah, your so products. Ways to reach us. And Janine is more than happy. And Mariana, the oh, other co-owner. My mom, actually. Yes. yes my mother. Are so willing to take your orders yes. via phone, via Instagram. And I can't wait for everyone else to enjoy these luxurious products. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. TV and film, I mean, every once in a while, a movie comes along like Brokeback Mountain uh, or Call Me By Your Name that breaks it, that breaks through and gets watched by a mass audience or at least a lot of people. But other than that, I think it's still pretty ghettoized. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, like we just saw this, um, this, just a few days ago, we saw this crazy movie called um, Dicks the Musical. Um, oh like, yes, yes, know, yes! I wanted to see that. It's funny. It's campy. Is it good? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's not a serious movie. It's a very it's kind of mm -hmm. a silly movie, but it's it's campy, good fun. But it, it's just an example of I think one of many movies that will only be seen by an LGBT audience. You know, I I I, I mean that that's the way I see it. Is it's great that we have our own movies. And it's great that people go and, and see them or rent them or, you know, so that it's been for quite a few years now, I think we've had a constant stream of 
LGBT films. Um, but I think we're still kind of in our own little ghetto in many ways for what yeah, that's I, worth. You know, I, I have I, to I, watch that now. I'm like, I need to <laughs> add dicks to the list. But I do think there's a movie coming out in December during the Christmas season that's going to really cause a queer female wave, which is great. Uh, the Color Purple musical. Oh, wow. As a movie. Yes. So it's now the adaptation of the musical. Um, so redoing it uh, for uh, film, but, you know, Whoopi Goldberg's behind it, Oprah. So it's kind of like the same team that was behind the original Color Purple film. Oh, cool. Coming back for the musical. The musical, a musical version of it. Well, I guess you can make a musical out of almost anything. It's really yeah. incredible. I, really I did good. see it on Broadway. It's very good. Oh, it's very yeah, musical. Yeah, okay. I, another yeah. thing, too, I mean, another thing which I think is just about kind of LGBT representation is that I think in many movies now, especially in rom-coms, um, movies, maybe not action-adventure movies, which are directed to teenage boys, but movies that are sort of for a more general or broader audience, I think there usually is at least one LGBT character. It seems that it's almost de rigueur to have, you know, a best friend or maybe a second best friend or so that I think there's a sensitivity which did not exist, let's say 20 years ago, um, that, yeah, I mean, we're we're part of the world, we're part of the community. And there there is a often a feeling that there should be some kind of LGBT representation, even in movies that are basically, you know, straight or, you know, pitched to a, um, a mainstream audience. And I think streaming services are actually doing an excellent job. In my opinion, Richard, this is just my hat because TV is just um, less expensive to produce and you have more options with your streaming venues where you can option the rights for a TV show that there's so many LGBTQ characters, like you said, inter sected and placed into narratives like i'm watching the fall of the house of usher and that's a really queer show right now um there's the gilded age has come back for its second season and there's you know queer male storylines downton abbey had a queer storyline um so a, yeah uh, there was that there was that series um with neil patrick harris called uncoupled which mm. was again one of those I mean, Stephen and I have gotten really into those series, which I'm not a TV person and I don't watch much primetime TV, but some of those series um, are, are really good. They're, they're, they're addictive and they're just really well done. And uh, I mean, I don't think Uncoupled was all that special. We reviewed it in the magazine and I think um, the reviewer liked it. And well, it's not to like, it was, it was, it was funny. It was, uh, it was kind of light. I, in fact, I think they're coming back for another season. Um, I think. Oh, I good. Yes, I'll have to watch had, it. Yeah. And they've had two seasons so far, and we're still wondering whether um, Neil Patrick Harris is going to get back together with his boyfriend, whose name I forget. Um, but I mean, we've been we've been just like working our way through the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and oh, so good. not at all gay, but no, uh, but it's a great, it's campy. I it's mean, campy in some way, yes, it is, yeah. and it's a great series. Um, yeah, yeah, I love popular culture actually. Um, it's curious that we're talking about it because people think that we're sort of like, ooh, we're very sort of snooty magazine and we're very mm -hmm. serious. And actually, I, you know, I, I think popular culture is, is really important. I mean, I think it's, it's very important that we, we present ourselves in, you know, on TV and in movies and in popular books and you name it 
um, just to remind the general public that you know we're we're here, we're queer, get used to it, right? And we're not going away. Yeah, we're not going um, away. Well, and that's why your your review section is so robust. Like, if I just look, I mean, we mentioned Matt Baum's work, but this novel that I've really wanted to read, American Scholar by Patrick E. Horrigan, um, Passages, there's a film by uh, Ira Sachs is the director, Emma Donahue's Learned by Heart, um, Hilda Doolittle um, work, um, and then Gaze on Broadway. I mean, I lit up at that because I'm just a Broadway musical aficionado. So I like any new queer book that enters the scene. So how do all, that was something I wanted to ask since you are the editor in chief, Richard, I can put you in the hot seat, which is how do these reviews make their way? Are they like we're talking about, are they things in pop culture that you're just drawn to or are they pitched to you by contributors? Oh, well, okay. I mean, we have a process actually. That's pretty, that's um, that's easy because we actually have a fairly well, well worked out process, at least it, in the sense that it works. We have a literary editor named Martha, Martha Stone who you've interviewed. Yeah, yeah. And maybe she already explained this process to you. So uh, briefly, a lot of publishers of LGBT books send them to us. So mm -hmm. we end up with like a stack of maybe 75 books that Martha and I go through once every two months. I mean, we probably should do it more often, but um, we get together for like, you know, the better part of a day, which usually has lunch in the middle. And we spend that day just going through these 75 books. And we usually boil it down to about 25 books. These are the books that we would like to review. We call that our targeted list. Um, so um, we then have a stable of reviewers, which is almost 100 at this point. Some of them review in just about every single issue, like there are a few maybe who do so. Um, more often they come and go, like, you know, they'll review once or twice a year. But if you add it all together, we have, I think, a very strong group of people who have been, in many cases, they've been with us for a long time. And so they will receive a newsletter that has this targeted list of books, and then they will um, select what book they would like to review. Sometimes they'll give just one side. I really, really just want this one review or this one book to review. Or here's a list of, you know, three or four books that I could that I could review. So then I take those and I sort of adjudicate. I try to figure out what are the best matches. Obviously, I'm looking for skill sets and who's like, the most, who do I think would be the best person? Because there's always a lot of overlap. Sometimes there's a feeding frenzy for one particular book that everybody wants. Like if it's like a really famous writer, like, um, I don't know, Oscar Wilde is always really popular. So if there's a new book about Oscar Wilde, you know that at least a half a dozen people are going to claim that book. So I have to kind of make a lot of decisions at that point and allocate the book selections to make everybody happy and to make me happy in the sense that, you know, sort of the best person for the best job or the best book. And um, and that's how they get assigned. And so then I just let people know and we send the books out, um, you know, just physically, because we have them all here, like right behind me actually is their stacks, they come in, they, they stack up. And, um, and then they usually have about two months to read the book and send me the review. And uh, with any luck, they will actually do so. Not, not everyone does. A fair number of uh, times somebody will say, you know what, I don't, I'm, I'm, I thought this would be a good book, but I'm really not loving it. So in those, in those cases, I'll just say, okay, um, they will try to reassign yeah. it or just forget about it. 
Well, and using myself as a hypothetical, kind of, but like, say I said to you, just because anyone listening right now, they might be thinking, I mean, I'm about to, Richard, in the winter, I'm going to see Dracula, which is this queer male campy musical on Broadway, off Broadway, mm-hmm. technically. Um, but say I was like, oh my, I really have to, this is a conversation starter. I need to review it. Or I need to review The Color Purple. Or I have to review Fellow Travelers. Um, a new series right now with Jonathan Bailey from uh, um, Bridgerton. He's from Bridgerton, but he's with Matt Bomer. And they're this gay male couple. couple you might have heard of it with uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Well, I've heard it's great. I've heard it's really good. Fellow Travelers. Fellow Travelers. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So like... How does that work in the case of someone out there who's inspired by queer art that they're consuming? The fall of the yeah. House of Usher, even. Well, I'm totally, we're, we are totally open to um, people coming to us. In other words, it's not just exclusively done by that process I described, where we assign um, a mm-hmm. book. But especially, because you mentioned a lot of like movies and series and various other things. And since we don't really have that same kind of process in place, it's great when people come to us with a proposal. If we're, you know, books too, fine. If if we miss a book, especially that somehow or other slips through our fingers, yes. But if it's a mo- a play, an art museum, an art um, exhibition, or uh, a musical event or album, we have uh, we have like kind of a music critic, Colin Carmen, who um, who does those reviews and sometimes movies. So yes, we absolutely encourage people to come to us with proposals. And what should they do in that case, Richard? Like they have a proposal in mind. Should they email Stephen, for example? No, just come right to me, email me. Okay. Um, we have, I mean, Stephen, will, it will pass through Stephen's hands because it comes to, um, I, use, I use an AOL address, hglraol.com. I'm very old fashioned, but I also have an address um, which is, just my name, Richard Schneider, um, at gmail.org, I guess it is. Um, and that's, just go to our website and you'll, and under submissions, and you'll see that how that works. And then, um, so people often will send a proposal. And then, of course, I have to think about it. Uh, that's kind of what I do. I would say, you know, I don't know if people, most people know exactly what an editor does. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just about going through line by line and fixing people's grammar. It's much more about the selection process and curating, figuring out what are we going to uh, feature in our next issue? and What books are we going to review? Uh, what movies are we going to review? So there's always like a lot of decision-making and back and forth and sometimes persuasion. And sometimes I'll say, you know, dude, you're really going to have to persuade me on this one because <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm just not too sure about it. And so then they'll, they'll work on me sometimes. And um, eventually we, you know, come to some kind of agreement. Sometimes we agree, well, maybe not. But yeah, it's a, it's an interactive process. Well, so everyone out there, go to submissions on uh, G, glreview.org. Yes. Um, yeah. So the overall website is exactly glreview.org. And that and then you just you'll find lots. Of, it's a good website, I think. Um, I have very little to do with this. So I can say that we have a um, we have a web editor um, and we have and Stephen kind of manages and then we have a webmaster who takes care of the technical side of things. Um, but you'll find all kinds of stuff there, including um, sort of an archive, which has um, a 
lot of material since we've been in business for such a long, long time. Um, I think our archive goes back to only 2003, but that's still 20 years. Wow. And you, you, you know, do the math times like six times two, six issues per year times, you know, biggest yeah. number of articles per issue. So there's a lot of stuff. Well, you'll have something to read uh, every day from the Gay and Lesbian Review. But I, something that you've brought up that I, you've kind of touched it, but I am curious about process with your, you have such an intimate relationship with, say, an Andrew Halloran. I saw that first issue from yes, 1994, and he's there. And he's still here. And you must establish a real connection and intimacy with these contributors in a terms of their creative process. So I'm sure like when they are writing essays or they're doing reviews, what's it been like, Richard, to see how that is a kernel that actually starts to grow into their own projects? Like, have you seen it inspire their own work? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that about that's really rewarding about this job is that, I mean, someone like Andrew Hollard is a complete pro. I mean, he's such a great writer. I mean, far be it from me to try to, you know, teach him anything about um, about writing. He's taught me a lot, actually. And the fact that he's been with us right from the very start. Um, he, he really is, it was really Andrew in many ways who made the magazine possible by letting us publish that long memoir that he did and, and lending his name as a famous person, kind of a, a very well-known novelist, um, was really important to kind of establish us as a real thing. So I, I have to, you know, give us, uh, you know, even reinforce what you said uh, about um, Andrew Holleran's importance to the magazine. Um, other people have come, you know, they've come along. Um, I'm happy to say that there are people that started with us and got their start maybe right out of college and are no longer writing for us because they've gone on to bigger and better things. And, there, you know, there are bigger and better things. I mean, someone like Adam Feldman, he was still, he was just mm -hmm. fresh out of Harvard, I think, when he started writing for us. And he's now, like, he's like the editor, of, or he's at least the, I think he's the theatrical editor of Time Out New York, which is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, uh, you know, so I always look to him and I say, you know, wow, he got his start with us, really. So I've seen um, lots of growth and development, and if I have played my own small part in nurturing their talent and their writing, I would like to um, to think of, of that as um, you know part of my job that's very rewarding. And what I love is um, you really have described that you've created an every magazine, every issue is an arc. Like it really is telling a story. That's your job as an editor in chief. So for example, November and December, the title, the theme, uh, Notes from Underground, it takes its illusion from Dostoevsky's novella. So, oh. you know, how do you, I'm just curious, how do you come up with the theme or like where is it, once you see everything in front of you, it becomes almost like creating an overture in a Broadway musical. You can't create an overture without the songs. Yeah, it's sort of driven by what I have in hand. I, mm -hmm. So somebody will submit something and that will give me an idea. I wonder if I could create an issue around that idea or that theme. And so then I start to announce it and we have um, a page, I'll, I'll do something, I don't know again if this, how well this works to hold something up, but we have something called the cultural calendar and in the cultural calendar, it's this, it kind of looks like this and it's colorful and um, it, one thing that it includes is an announcement of, of um, upcoming themes. 
And so sometimes people will see that and they'll respond and they will say, oh, okay, that seems like something that I'd like to write about. But very often the theme just kind of, I don't know, gels, or I just look at what I've got in front of me and I say, oh, okay. Now I have to admit like Notes from Underground is a little bit of, it's, I cheated a little bit on that one because the term underground can mean a, can mean different things. Like for example, um, so you have, first of all, um, this guy, um, let's see, um, you've got this guy, well, first of all, you've got this uh, Fastbinder, Werner Fastbinder, and he is sort of underground in the sense that he was considered an underground filmmaker who wasn't part of the studio system. So he mm -hmm. was kind of like, you know, that kind of underground. Then you have like Georges Ekaud, and he um, was a, uh, a Dutch writer who wrote a book called A Strange Love way back in 1899. And it was really quite uh, shocking for its time because it's clearly gay. It's clearly about same-sex physical contact. And it's not pornographic because you could only say so much, but it's, it's quite clear what he was up to. So, so that's underground in the sense that it, it was, it had limited distribution and um, it was kind of a, just one of those naughty books that got published and read probably by a handful of people. Then you've got like another, another way of being underground is um, this woman um, who, um, who, whose name is, um, Gertrude, I'm trying to remember her uh, full name, Sandman. Gertrude Sandman survived the Nazi regime in Germany by going underground in a different sense of the word. She was protected by her friends. She lived in Berlin. Even while the Nazis were destroying her work, she was an artist. They were just, even while they were sort of trying to wipe out her, her artwork, she was essentially wiping out her identity so that the Nazis didn't find her. She survived and lived to a ripe old age, right in Berlin, as Jewish and lesbian, as an artist. Um, it was quite, a, quite an amazing story. So, so she kind of was underground in that, in that sense. Then you've got um, Mark Olmsted, who's, who wrote a wonderful book um, called Ink from the Pen, which is about his year-long experience in the LA County prison system. It was for drugs. It happened quite a number of years ago, but um, he kept a diary. He's a writer, he's a wonderful writer. And the book itself, I would recommend, it's called Ink from the Pen, once again. And he describes what it was like to be a gay, HIV positive dude in the uh, LA County prison system. And the article is called Prison and Privilege because what he discovered was that there's this very complex social structure in prison that places you into a mm, category or a set of overlapping categories. So it's very intersectional because being gay is one thing, being straight, um, being Hispanic, being black, being white. It was almost like the three-way division. And that puts you in a different 
um, position in the prison system. And there's all kinds of different rules. Like in some ways, you, in some ways being gay is bad because you're sort of, you know, for all the reasons that being gay can, can be bad um, for various people throughout history, but it can also be advantageous to be gay. You can get certain privileges and you can get removed from kind of the mainstream and taken away from a really dangerous part of the jail. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org, that's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe, so on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. 
And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions and how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So that was interesting. So as I say, uh, that's note from, that Notes from Underground, I think is uh, an interesting theme, but it was, <laughs> in that case, it was a little bit, um, it was a little bit contrived in the sense that, you know, because the word underground is is being used in a number of different ways. But it's such a symbolic interpretation and it works so well with the way you've just laid and mapped out all of these articles, Richard. I think that, you know, I love your high intellect and, you know, how in-depth you are with this conversation, but I'm going to get a little gossipy, which is just, my question is, have you... How do you navigate, because you are a magazine and you are a review magazine, how have you navigated the artists themselves? Like, has there ever been, it's almost like when Jesse Green interview, um, reviews uh, theater for New York City in the New York Times. Like, he's been on the show and I've talked with him a lot about how he kind of has to keep this distance. Like, because if you get too close to the subject, it can bias your review in theater. Um, do you feel though that because the contributors really are coming to you with their knowledge or just their passion, you don't really have to worry so much about how an artist or a creator is perceived from a review that's written? Well, I'm very careful about, um, I mean, that, you, I think there are a number of questions there, but I think, I'm very careful about trying to um, keep a kind of wall of separation between a reviewer and the work being reviewed. So, um, and I'm always a little alarmed. It happens quite frequently that somebody will um, say that, oh, I was in touch with the um, author of this book who um, who I may or may not know, but who sent me a copy of their book. And, you know, and that already I'm a little nervous you know, because that means you've already had some kind of interaction with the author. And I, I really do think it's important to have as much objectivity as possible and therefore as much distance as possible. So to the extent that I'm able as the editor to sort of like keep a sort of separation between the reviewer and the, and the, the author or the director or whatever, um, I do it. I think that's important. And I, I really... I don't like it when I don't. I particularly don't like it when authors of a book come to me and recommend somebody who they think could review their book. Oh. Um, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, so obviously, no, that's not going to happen because you've already sort of 
hand select if you as the author of the book have already kind of handpicked that person who you think is going to be um a good reviewer maybe that's tr maybe they would be a good reviewer but it seems there's already a kind of bias you you you've chosen them because you think they'll give you a good review now i would say most reviews probably are favorable but certainly not all i mean there certainly are some reviews that are either lukewarm or quite unfavorable and when someone when a reviewer comes to me and says you know uh, I don't really like this book very much. Um, I, I think I would have to give it a bad review. So what should I do? I'll say, give it a bad review. I mean, you know, you have to be honest. You have to call it the way you, you, you know. And sometimes people will just say, look, I, I feel very uncomfortable doing that. So I'm, I'm going to withdraw. Okay, fine. You know, I can't force you. But I will always tell people, you know, that's what, we're, that's what a review is. A review is supposed to be um, a dispassionate appraisal of a book that will enable readers to make a judgment as to whether they want to buy that book and read that yeah. book. Yeah, exactly. So, but you've never really had to worry about the creator themselves banging down your door. Oh, I have, and... oh, I always have to worry about that. <laughs> oh no, it's uh, like, you know, going back to Andrew, Andrew Holler and said, um, uh, right from the so, you know you're going to be a lightning rod if you do this and if it works you will be an absolute you will be a lightning rod because of course writers are writers have egos you know you, you spend a huge amount of time you know people don't realize how well, of course they do writing a book is is quite a hard thing to do it's it's a it's a major investment and of course you you you've poured yourself mm -hmm. into it so people have a lot invested in their work whether it's a book or a movie or anything else. And so there are sensitivities and, you know, people are going to get upset if they don't like the way a book, their book was reviewed. And they particularly might get upset if, if a book is passed over, if, you, if we don't review a book. I do my best to cover as many books as we possibly can, but of course we can't cover them all. So there's always that. But I think you're also hinting at a question about the exact interaction or the interaction that I have mm. with writers. And does that sometimes get testy or heated or difficult and the answer is of course you know of course it does um i'm you know i'm a pretty hands-on editor i mean i i when somebody turns something in i i always go through very carefully and the range can be from okay that's almost perfect i have almost no changes maybe a comma here or there you know just things to get us up to glr style all the way to you know fairly thoroughgoing rewrite on my part in some cases and so when you do that you know people I, and I always tell people look I I do the, the least that I think I have to and I always run it by I will never just publish something without getting complete permission from the writer to make sure that they're okay with it but there's a process sometimes people are you know a little upset about the way I edited something um, or they think I went overboard or they didn't like that I cut something. And it's almost always amicable and I am always willing to negotiate and I will usually do what the, if it's really important to the writer, I will almost always take that seriously. But there's a negotiation process. And of course there have been some, you know, knockdown drag out fights where I didn't talk to somebody for, or they didn't talk to me for five years or, um, yeah, that has, yes, that has happened. On a few occasions, but I will say in almost all cases, we make up and um, eventually everything is fine. Um, but that's what you'd expect really in this business. It's, um, you know, um, 
different people have different feelings. Um, and uh, so it just comes with the territory. Well, and I think like as we're nearing the end, something that I just find so refreshing about what even drew me to the Gay and Lesbian Review and allows me to be here with you, Richard, full circle is something that I just value, which is free speech, which is um, being so individualized with our ideas, our authenticity. So even like when you, you know, wrote a piece about politics and Biden and like exposing right wing conservatives and how they're using transgender um, individuals as scapegoats, it, it shows me that you as the editor in chief, you're able to take on a certain vulnerability um, with your own beliefs, like you're okay to be out there. Is that something I'm assuming that you really value in the magazine is that each writer, including yourself, has their um, free speech and their own values uh, represented, that they're not going to be censored? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, I I value you know a range of I. I mean, we I I don't have I don't push any particular ideology. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm I'm politically liberal. Of course, I'm Democrat. I mean, I have to just you know be honest about that. I think it would be surprising if I were not, and I think probably that describes most of our writers and most of our readers. Um, I mean, it's just like who, which, which party and which type of ideology has been favorable to LGBT rights and freedoms and promoting our uh, our lives and helping us and which which party and which ideology has been, you know, stopping us and throwing up barriers every step of the way. I mean, I think it's pretty clear, um, but I certainly don't, but within that sort of broad range that, you know, I, that I think we all, we all expect us, I will not publish something that is anti-LGBT, put it that way. I mean, we have a policy right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't necessarily want to present, you know, we're, we're not Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm just presenting a, completely um, favorable um, Shangri-La version of LGBT life. Um, we want to deal with social problems as well, but, we, I, but we're not going to publish anything that's sort of like homophobic or anti-LGBT. Mm-hmm. Wait, does that ever actually get presented your way, Richard? Mm, every once in a while, yeah. Every once in a while, some people come. And it's always written kind of... Um, slyly so that you know between the lot it takes a little reading between the lines to realize oh they're basically um they're they, they're basically trying to undermine lgbt rights in a, in a way that's um not as direct as let's say people on the christian right are constantly yeah. doing they're not but, marjorie taylor green for example not Mar- but yeah but every once in a while yeah something something comes along you you made reference earlier, I think, to um, you didn't specifically mention my BTW column, but I think something you said kind of reminded me of a little blurb that's in the current issue. This is a this is kind of like pulled from the news type column where mm-hmm. I look for interesting um, little um, little stories that might have been missed that may or may not be the most important thing that's happening in the news, but have bearing on LGBT rights and life. And um, in, in most, in many cases, there's like, a, there's like a certain irony or a certain 
um, weirdness to the story, which I which which appeals to me for whatever reason. So um, I do that column um, and in every issue. It's it's called BTW, and usually there's like five or six of these little squibs, which I spend a lot of time on because I I try to make them sort of you know clever, and in some cases they're funny. I I, I hope at least they're supposed to be. Um, so um, that's where well, I that's yeah. where I present my politics. Let's say, and a lot of them are about like the Christian right, you know, because I'm not, or, or especially like evangelical Christians. Um, the hard Christian right is definitely not our friend. So a lot of the articles are sort of exposing those people who are dealing with their shenanigans. Yeah. Well, one example is uh, what I had seen circulating too, but that. Um, like Christian right protest. There's a Biden sucks sign, <laughs> and like the father's sons are holding it, and there's a cock on full display with Biden's face on the head of the penis, <laughs> on, the of the penis. on the glands, I guess. Um, the glands, yeah. and then like the sperm coming, like coming out, says my kids. My so like kid I'm not an arrow with a helpful arrow pointing up. I know. And this guy claims that this is somehow supposed to promote his anti-transgender um, agenda. I, and so what I point out is like, how? I mean, what is the, you know, find the fit. How is that in any way related to a um, transgender agenda? Um, uh, it's, it's, by the way, the, the sign is 16 feet long. You're, you're your listeners cannot see that, but it is, and it, it's very, very long. And above the penis, it says Biden sucks. And um, as you say, it has um, other little weird things written on it. Um, yeah, it's like, what? Are, what? What's he thinking? I don't. I don't. That. Yeah. That's well, what? Thing. And isn't it? It's also a really queer themes, like male, male, male. Um, Oral sex meets fellatio meets yeah. orgasm meets, um, yeah. I guess my children came <laughs> from this act of pleasure and Biden, you know, submitted to having a cock in his mouth. I don't know. There's there's a lot going What's on. What's going there, on there? Children. I know I'd say Freud would have a field day with this. I don't know what he would say exactly, but um, and then um it seems that his he's anti-trans and he's you know to protect the children from trans, but he's also into this idea of grooming, which I don't know where this idea. What are they talking about? That they these um, like as you say, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and those types are constantly talking about grooming, which uh, whatever that is. And so apparently this guy is into that, and I wonder is that somehow the key to understanding, or should we just assume this guy's an idiot? Or he's just a weird pervert who felt like doing a 16-foot penis under the rubric of uh, being being anti-trans, and is imagining himself <laughs> on his knees. I think he might be Goodbye. wanting to be on his knees in front of that 16-foot penis. But uh, so this definitely that. is going to be on our social media, Richard, because I need to show this image to everyone. But yes, yes, you have to. Show I am image. curious though, like just to wrap up. I love your though. Uh, BTW section. Um, so, by the way, I'm assuming that's what it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It just okay. 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 It was, it was cute. It was kind of back. I started that back in 2001, and back then it was um, 
it was sort of clever BTW, by the way. And I sort of, well, that's exactly what this is, or by the wayside. So that's, yeah, that's where that comes from. Yeah, not on the boiler play, but it's in the ether. Um, so have politics, has there been a shift from in these 30 years? Like, do you feel that the content now is more open or has it always, you feel the pulse has always been very open with all these different topics over these 30 years? Oh, well, things have changed a lot. I mean, uh, certainly to go back to 1994, we were still like in the middle of the um, AIDS epidemic. There was a huge amount of homophobia. There were, there were very few protections. There certainly wasn't same-sex marriage. Um, so we've made some progress. I mean, as bad as things seem right now, um, they haven't managed to take too much away from us. Um, although there are obviously people who would who would love to take everything away from us if they you know, possibly could. I think the magazine now is, if anything, less political because there, because many things have kind of issues have been settled. There's we now can serve in the military. We have same sex marriage. Um, we have, you know, before the current Supreme Court, we got some good rulings which um, provided some workplace protection, and so as long as those things stay in place, there's no guarantee. I think um, our focus has changed. And I think the the magazine is really a lot about history and biography at this point. And I I don't want it to become just sort of archival. And I'm always aware of that possible danger that we're so focused on the past and people and LGBT people from the past. Um, we did over the summer an issue that was devoted to kind of like new media. So, um, which, and I think, I think it was really good that we were able to, um, to, to talk about um, the, the world of gay oriented uh, video games and. Um, uh, I think you had comic books. Comic books mm -hmm. and fanzine type stories um and 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 there was also an article on grinder mm -hmm. which, um is something that is an important part of our culture you know i think it's something that we can talk about as uh however you feel about it you know i think it's it's you know it's an it's the way guys meet each other now let's mm -hmm. face it along with scruff and maybe one or two others yeah. i grew up and came out in a world of gay bars and that was it. And it's now a different world. But that's fine. And that's something that, you know, we look and that's that's something that we have looked at a lot because certainly the media, mass media, social media, grinder, et cetera, have had a great impact on our culture and are very yeah. central to our culture now. Imagine that you're riding the Turner classic movie, Great Movie Ride, in Hollywood studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I 
was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Happy almost holiday season. Because the holidays are upon us, I'm sure so many of you out there are thinking, oh my, what am I going to get my friends, my family, my children, my romantic partner, my husband, my wife, any, you know, significant person in your life. Look no further than my good friend, Mandy Bangle, who makes handmade crocheted items. Her company is called Mandy Made It. You can follow her on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And you will see all of these crocheted items that she's going to be able to customize for you, including special characters, sports team figures, even holiday items like a snowflake or a Christmas tree. So I have Mandy's keychains. I have the poison apple from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have a rainbow um, flag that she made me. So Mandy is able to really customize an order just depending on what your hobbies and passions are. And you know, what item you're really looking for. So because you're listening to me talk about Mandy, she said that anyone who goes to Mandy Made It on Instagram and orders from her, and they've heard the Ivory Tower Boiler Room ad, she will give you all a free Ivory Tower Boiler Room t-shirt with your order. So head right now to Mandy Made It. You know, if you were really looking for that special gift, now you don't have to Look any further because I have you covered with Mandy Mated. Okay, I hope you all enjoy your items from Mandy Mated. And please make sure that you take a photo of your crocheted items so that we can share it out on our social media. I know Mandy would love that, and I would love to see what you all are ordering from her. She even has an adorable pillow called Netflix and Chill, and she has these cute coasters that she crochets for your favorite coffee or tea mug. So enjoy all your Mandy Made It products. And this is why we need to like have your contributors dissect, analyze, um, and explore these phenomenons. So Richard, I can't wait to, you know, have more people out there have the Gay and Lesbian Review either physically in front of them in this tactile tactile way or their eyes on their screen exploring the digital edition. Um, I can't wait to see the 30th anniversary um, illustrations. Um, yeah, so okay. is that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. 
but um, so that the the thirtieth um, anniversary book, which will replace the January February two thousand twenty four issue, as I mentioned, um, will be called um, Outer Appearances, and the reason for that is that so this again I'm going to hold something up. This is the book that this is kind of part one of Charles Heffling. So this one was called Casual Outings. These are like historical figures that um, that were kind of that were sort of closeted, and so we're outing them, but in a casual way. So that's why it was called Casual Outings. And these are mostly like so-called high culture. And the next book is more about is more about um, popular culture figures. And so um, I and think they, I saw Madonna. Yeah, and so they're mostly. Um, they're mostly out. I, actually, I think it was you might have seen Melissa Etheridge and, and, and thought it was Madonna, because oh. I don't think I don't think Madonna is actually in it. But um, but Melissa Etheridge is, and a lot of you know so-called popular figures, and so it's called outer appearance because they're get it because they're outer than the first group. The yes, 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 yes. More out and outer appearances. I don't know. It kind of works as I like wordplay, and so I, well, yeah, you're but, all about the words. I'm all about which... words. So yes, yes, yes. So anyway, just to, I, I just wanted to throw that in as a little pitch so that people will be on the lookout Wait, for my next. So book. if people are subscribing, they automatically receive this 30th anniversary book. Yes, yes. That's, oh, excellent, Richard. Yeah, so they get that. And, and there's, there will also be a small supplement that will have book reviews and some ads and things. Um, we do, you know, we do accept advertising, which is an important part of our deal. I should also mention we're a nonprofit organization, since I didn't mention that, and we accept donations, which are a very important part of our survival. Um, yes, the yeah. friends of the GNLR. Friends of the GNLR. There is a whole section, uh, friends of the review. Yes, so yeah, shout out certainly. to the friends of the review. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 like really critical um, for us. And we have lots of them. Um, we've been amazed at how people are very generous and we, we, we get um, tax deductible contributions. Um, and so then advertising I mentioned, but yes, the next issue is going to be basically a book that will replace the issue and it will be called Outer Appearances. Well, and it's, it's exciting because it's literally going to happen in the new year. So, or might arrive like right, you know, after the holiday season. With any luck, yes, it'll it'll come out right around there, end of December. So it's a you know uh, belated stocking stuffer uh, yeah. of sorts. So yeah, yeah. everyone, remember use our promo code ITBR fifty, and you get fifty percent off your digital or print subscription uh, when you go on to glreview.org. Uh, okay. So you know, I am so excited that more people are going to have their eyes on. I mean, it's just, there was a video I just released, Richard, um, you know, shouting out the Gay and Lesbian Review, but also there was this quote that I had about how one book, I mean, it's a trite quote, but like, it makes sense to us cozy readers. Like one book leads to another mention, and then you're on a rabbit hole search. And I feel that the Gay and Lesbian Review is such an amazing example of that. Like one review leads you to 10 works. Oh, or okay. one article leads you to 20 exhibits. You know, it's yeah, that's great. That's what I love about magazines. Um, I love magazines. I, I do. I have to admit I, it's, it's to the extent to the point that I almost don't read as many books as I should. 
because I get so many magazines. But you get a lot of uh, quick synopses and summaries. So, you know, it's a different type of digestion. It appeals to my dilettantism. Uh, I'm sort of, that's, like most editors, I'm kind of a dilettante. You know, I have to be interested in everything, you know, all over the place. And the idea of just focusing on one thing is, well, it's good. I mean, I, I admire people who can do that. But yeah, I know I always feel guilty, but I am stopping that guilt when I like am only focused on one work. I mean, my dissertation was a focus, so uh, your, that's out there now. What was your dissertation? Yeah. Uh, it's on um, ancient Greek mythology uh, in Walt Whitman and how Walt Whitman, I argue, created a queer male procreative um, theory. And every male writer or reader after Whitman would see his poems and the ancient Greek myth is an opening of understanding male same-sex desire without the language of sexuality in wow. his historical time. So wow. I do mention Oscar Wilde at the end. That um, like cool. that's that's where I would pick it up. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's called, thank you. It's called The okay. Pool of Narcissus, uh, Walt Whitman's Male Homoerotic Poetics. Wow. Um, yeah, I love so, Walt Whitman, I love the ancient yeah. Greeks. I, you know, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, well, like you, I needed that wordplay of not only the pool, literally, of Narcissus, but Greek myth pooling us okay. as queer male readers. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently optioning it for a publisher, an academic publisher. So I'm writing a book proposal. Oh, good, um, good luck. Yes, that. getting sure. that energy out there. Yeah, yeah. well, good luck. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear updates. Don't worry. Um, okay. And I'd love for you to come back again, like maybe, you know, in the summer and just talk about, you know, what to expect in the summer and give us all an yeah. update. I just love these conversations. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll even have to get Martha back. We'll need to get Martha and Steven on with you too. Maybe it'll be. What do you do? You all, do like yeah. panels, like a, a panel discussion, like a group? Oh, yes. Yeah, we can definitely do a group panel. I think that okay. would be great. Yeah, maybe. And, be you know, now that I'm doing a business meeting, but everyone listening in the audience can hear our <laughs> business meeting, you know, if ever there's someone who does a review for you and you want to put them in touch, um, you know, there was a film, a TV show, or especially a film or a TV show, I'd love okay. to have them on and we'll like, you know, mention the GNL our review, but also recap that TV show or film. I think that would be a great fun, uh, you know, informal discussion. Okay. Sounds good. So Richard Schneider, everyone, editor-in-chief and founder of GNLR, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Um, make sure you get your hands on glreview.org. You can get your print or your digital subscription. Use the code ITBR50 for 50% off. And Look forward to the 30th anniversary illustrated book that will replace the January and February issue. I think I got it, Richard. Anything else yeah. you want to promote? Oh, that's it. I think you got it all. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for um, of course. mentioning all that. And um, I hope your listeners will take heart, take heed, and um, check us out. Great. And Instagram at the GL Review. Uh, so thank you, Richard, and bye to everyone out there. Happy holidays. You know, Thanksgiving, when this comes out, it will almost be here. And then, you know, the cozy holiday, uh, I can almost hear 
the sleigh bells jingling around. <laughs> and I'm already going crazy with all my gingerbread peppermint. I love it. Every season, Richard, I'm like, actually, that's not true. The spring is less exciting for me, but the summer, the fall, the winter has a lot of enjoyable scents. The spring needs to step it up a little. Uh, oh, okay. All right. We'll work on that. <laughs> I think they need to, yeah, you need to talk to spring, Richard. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you, so much, thank you, Richard. Okay. Bye to everyone out there. Bye. <laughs>